As we continue in our series through the life of Abram, or Abraham, as we will come to get to know him in a few weeks, uh, we get to chapter 14, and I'm actually going, we're going to pick up a little later in this chapter. We're actually going to, I decided to even cut a little bit of what is in your bulletin. We're going to pick up at verse 13, but let me set the scene a little bit because it can get very confusing. Uh, there are four kings from outside the region of Palestine. They are probably from what is now eastern Turkey, maybe northern Iraq, an area known as Mesopotamia. Uh, they, are, they have come down into Palestine to raid and plunder. They're not really trying to occupy it, they're just doing this. And they've made their way down through probably what is the northern part of Israel as we know it now, and have made their way down to some cities that are near the Dead Sea. And five of the kings there, so there's four kings and five kings, five of the kings there around the Dead Sea have banded together to try to fight them. Uh, Among those kings are the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, which we heard about in the previous chapter. And they lose. And where this comes into focus for our story however, is that Abram's nephew, Lot, who lived in Sodom, was captured. And that's where we pick up in verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been, cap- had been taken captive, He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people... After his return from the defeat of Kedarlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, new venue, but God's word is still faithful, so let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would speak by your word. Pray that you would teach us what we need to learn from it. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, there's a word that pops up here in this passage a bunch, blessed. We have a troubled relationship with this word blessed because what you can do with blessed is buy a whole bunch of decor for your house that says blessed. Some of you may have a shiplap sign with blessed written in cursive on it. Or maybe you've got the trifecta of thankful, grateful, and blessed. Uh, Be that as it may, uh, you will never find a God bless this mess house in our house because our house is a mess and we don't need to be reminded about it most of the time. But maybe you have posted on social media, hashtag blessed. I mean, if you're still hashtagging, uh, the kids aren't doing that anymore. But, uh, you know, the hashtag blessed. We use this word all the time. Or we might say, bless your heart. Which is to imply that God better intervene because you are such a train wreck of a human being that God better show up and help you out. But when the Bible talks about God blessing us, he isn't talking about what's material. It's not talking about anything trite. Although it may imply that we are train wrecks of human beings, but God's blessing is the thing we want to explore this morning. What it means to be blessed by God, what it means to be blessed by God alone, and why we are blessed. I couldn't alliterate it, but what it means to be blessed by God, what it means to be blessed by God alone, and what the purpose of his blessing is. So notice this, Abram is blessed. This is, in fact, what Melchizedek recognizes in verses 19 to 20. God's blessed him, and he's blessed him with victory. This kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of remarkable, this victory. On the one hand, there's some things that Abram does that are strategically pretty smart. Remember, this is not a gigantic army. This is not an occupation force. Uh, but it's still, an ar- it's still an army from four different cities. So it's pretty sizable. And they have probably won, so their guard is down. They're on their way back to where they came from. So their guard is down, and he, they're probably having a good time at night. And so what does Abraham do? He waits till the middle of the night. He divides his force so that he's coming in multiple directions. All this is wise, and yet it's still just 318. It's remarkable to pick up the fact that there are 318 that come out of Abraham's household. Did you notice that? That's a little bit strange. I mean, it does mention later that those friends of his were with him and perhaps a few from their household. So whether 318 is strictly speaking just from Abraham's household or whether that includes a few others, doesn't really matter. It's still a really big number. We were told back in chapter 13 that Abram has gotten really wealthy, and this reflects that. His household is enormous. Of course, you know, servants and all would have been counted in your household. Uh, various artisans that, that a, a wealthy person was the primary patron of would be generally considered part of their household. So this is a huge number, though. I mean, it's a sign of how wealthy and powerful Abram has really become. But it's still miraculous. This is really the first of sort of the miraculous victories that show up throughout the Bible. But it's more important than the victory itself is what happens when he meets with Melchizedek, this mysterious character who shows up here. 
what, what has happened is that Abram's won, they, they have chased them into the northern part of Israel, won this battle, and they're on their way back down. And they meet in the Valley of the Kings, which is the Kidron Valley, just to the east of Jerusalem. Salem is the old name for Jerusalem. You can hear how they're related. Um, and so the king of Salem comes out, and we find out that not only is he a king, but he's also a priest to the Most High. Kind of an odd king and priest. Now, in ancient Near East, that, that wasn't necessarily unusual. But it's peculiar that he uses the name that is a priest to the Most High. The Hebrew word is Elyon, which is not very common, especially in the narratives. It, it shows up more in the, in the Psalms where the idea, the idea of who God is gets restated in different ways. But it, so it means that someone is the Most High. The, place we, the other place where we see it mentioned a number of times is in the book of Daniel. Uh, it's, it's not technically the word Elyon, it's the Aramaic version of it, because it's in the section of Daniel that's in Aramaic. But, the, uh, but it's the related word for that, and that's the word that Nebuchadnezzar uses to describe the one true living God. So in other words, that word Elyon seems to be the way that people who didn't call upon the covenant name of God, Yahweh, would describe him. So Melchizedek is not part of Abraham's family and those that follow from him. He comes from outside of it, and yet, mysteriously, he is a priest to the one true living God. It's kind of bizarre. And he blesses Abraham, blesses him in the name of the God who is the possessor of heaven and earth. Right, the one who has everything, and he's going to give Abram everything. It is a reminder, in many ways, of the original promise to Abram in chapter 12. Right, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. And that's where he picks up again. He blesses God, who is the one who delivers the enemies of Abram into his hands. So we've got this... This idea of blessing, and this is a funny word, isn't it? Because it means two different things. We use, it's the same turn of phrase, but when we're talking about God, of course, we're recognizing who God is. Right? When we're talking about God, we're rec- we are, all we're doing when we bless God is recognize who he is. Period. His power, his majesty, his worth. When we bless another person, we're invoking the promises of God for that person. Now, they're no less true if they're the promises of God, for sure. But you see, there's a difference even in the way that we use that word. And it's true in the Hebrew as it is in English. And Abram, we know this is real worship because Abraham gives him a tithe in the law that will follow. But this, remember, this is part of the books of Moses. But in the law that will follow, the tithe, the tenth, is the standard thing you sacrifice to God, you give to God, a tenth. That's the standard offering. So in other words, Moses is doing the sort of proper thing here. This is proper worship before God. So what does all this teach us about what it means to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed by God? Does it mean to gain things materially? It kind of does in Abraham's case, right? 
that the proof of what God is doing in his life is, you know, is partly borne out in his material gain. But the things that God actually promises him are not more money, more possessions. It is a people and a place. It is his descendants and the land that they will inherit. And this is important to understand because when we talk about God blessing other people, we should not mean primarily their material goods. When you are thinking about what it might mean for God to bless you, you should not be thinking primarily in terms of that. Some churches will talk that way. But here's the thing. Even though most of us probably don't think that way, we do tend to think, though, that, well, but there's a floor, right? Like, God's, God's going to take care of us at least, you know, up to a certain level. But that's not really the point. And actually, most Christians around the world right now would not think that way. I mean, many of, this is the thing, most Christians now are not white people in the Western world. They're Asian and African and South American. I mean, many of those places, there is literal persecution, unapologetic persecution of Christians. And we we prayed for Christians in Afghanistan this morning. Other places, it's at least dicey. There are plenty of places where there are uh, other religious traditions that are strong, and that leads to tensions. I mean, there, there are plenty of places around the world where they would know better than we do to think that way. The early church knew better than to think that way. The early church told stories of those who gave generously and in a costly way. The early church told stories the stories of a good life, the stories of a life that were let well lived, were martyr stories. You can read some of these. Most of them aren't very long. You can find them online really easily. Look up the martyrdom of Polycarp. He was an early, one of the early church fathers. You can look up the martyr of two women, Perpetual and Felicitas. I mean, this is, these were the stories that were told of those who had lived a life well. Because these were stories of being blessed by God. Again, not with the material goods. In fact, in some ways, often with suffering. But these were those who were loved by God. James 2 tells us that God called Abram his friend. To be blessed by God is to see him face to face in the end. We read from Hebrews 11 last week and talked talked about how they were looking for a different home. A city whose foundations were built not by human hands, but by God. And you think about the, the one moment I can think is most clear where the questions of what we gain materially is stripped away and the questions of character become obvious is right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes. Think about that. It is a list of God's (laughs) blessing on you. His pronouncement of blessing on you. And this is what Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. If you want to know what it means to be blessed, it means to be meek, to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Because that's a description of God's character. You see, to be loved by God is never without effect. And that is what he does when he blesses us with his love. He changes us, and that's the kind of character he grows in our hearts. Now, look, we are tempted other ways. And you see Abram tempted to think differently about it here. Right? Because he shows up in verse 21. The king of Sodom says, you know, I, 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 you, look, you've got to take him at his word. I'm sure he's thankful for what Abram did. <laughs> right? I'm sure he's glad that Abram has brought back all these things. And he says, look, thank you for bringing back our people. You can keep all the stuff. You can keep all of it. And what does Abram say in verses 22 and following? No. And he gives a reason. He says, because I, basically he says, I don't want you to be able to say that I made Abram rich. Abram's savvy, right? I mean, he knows something about the way these people think. The way the king of Sodom is thinking, right? And today, he's all grateful. But when things are going well, and they reestablish, and they rebuild, and remember, it is a wealthy and city and doing well in general. When things are going well, they will turn around and brag about what they have done to enrich Abram. He knows it. He's no fool. I think that brings an interesting question then. What does that look like in our lives? To refuse to pursue being blessed by other things than God. I think one of the questions that that raises uh, is as a Christian, what does this mean you engage with? That is not a Christian. Or who do you engage with? Uh, that's a hard question. It's not a simple one. In fact, my kind of old organization that I used to be connected with was the Harvard Chaplains, and they made news this week, uh, infamously among <laughs> religious circles, uh, because uh, a friend of mine who was the humanist chaplain was elected the president of the chaplain's organization. Now, there's a pretty deep under misunderstanding about how that organization works, and it's actually just an administrative job. Um, but of course, you know, Harvard is always kind of a Rorschach for whatever anxieties people have, and so they read on that what they've read. But it is an interesting question, right? And it raises a lot of perplexing questions about who we interact with. If you want to talk to me about that situation, we can talk about it later. But, uh, Look, the Bible does draw some lines, right? I mean, primarily, the difference between Christian and non-Christian is over who's being saved and who's not. Though, of course, that is God's line to draw, not ours. Uh, we will draw a line over the sacrament, right? You should only partic participate if you're a Christian. 
there are some directions about like, look, you should, you know, Christians should only marry non other Christians. But, you know, if somebody actually does can marry somebody who's a non-Christian after that's done with, we're still called to love them and care for them and support them. There are places we're told, you know, a, a number of different things, but there's a lot of wisdom that's needed, right? There's a lot of things that are not crystal clear. I mean, who do you get into business with? We're, not, we're told not to distance ourselves. We're told to be in the world. Not of the world, but still in the world. We're told to love our neighbors. Told even to love our enemies. I think there's two things to think about in this regard. One of them is what can you do with a clean conscience? There's, there's uh, two moments in the New Testament where Paul talks about what people eat. This is, a, this is a curious thing. It's in Romans 14 and then in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. There's two different moments Paul brings up what people are eating. And what's fascinating is that it becomes a whole conversation about, who, about those who are stronger in the faith ought to bear with those who are weaker in the faith. He uses the same language in both passages. In Romans, those who are weak in the faith are those with a Jewish background. In Corinthians, those who are weak in the faith are those with a Gentile background. It's not about their background. It's about how they work through these questions. But in both cases, he says, though, but you, you should do this with a clean conscience. In other words, if you think maybe I'm possibly doing something wrong here, you shouldn't do it. Now, the thing about a conscience is we train a conscience. And, of course, what Paul's solution, Paul's way out of that problem is to dig deeper into the gospel and to think together about those questions, right, and work them through. But you should do things with a clean conscience. And the other thing is you should do them with the honor of God in mind. You might say that's the primary thing, actually. Think about Colossians 3. We're told to do everything in the name of God. So if what you're undertaking seems questionable to put God's name on, maybe you ought to stop a minute. We're told to uh, dwell on things that are honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise in Philippians 4. In 1 Peter 2, this, this is a fantastic line, 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's a lot to take in there for a second. Do you get that? Keep your conduct honorable so that, and it sounds like an inevitability, when others speak evil of you, in the end they will speak well of you when everything is revealed for what it is. Right? You get that? In other words, Paul is not primarily consumed with the question of like, is this going to look bad? Or is this going to, no, Paul, or, or I'm sorry, Peter. Peter presumes that, in fact, sometimes people are going to think pretty badly of you. But it needs to be clear that when everything is revealed, that what you've done is for the glory of God. So ask yourself these kinds of questions. Is this thing more about the honor of God than some other project that I'm interested in? 
that I think would be good. Is, this go- is what I'm doing going to be known for those of questionable character that I'm engaged with rather than the honor of God? Those are hard questions. But here's, here's the, another question you need to be able to ask. Can you repent and repudiate if you were wrong? That's a harder question. Because we have a tendency to try to double down. Because you thought you were right. Maybe you did. And maybe to the best of your knowledge, it was a good decision. But we don't know everything. And that is so important, I think, especially for the, our, our Christian witness, right? The honor of God is to be able to say, I misjudged. This was a bad idea. Shouldn't have done it. And there's no loss in that. In fact, it is a witness to the good news of Jesus. But here's the other thing. Lots of Christians, we, we aren't so much worried about who we're engaging with otherwise we will live our, we'll just decide to live our lives in a Christian subculture. And in some places, you know, that's easier to do than others, but that's the way, that, we think that's the way out, right? Okay, so if I, if I just kind of live within this community, if I, you know, try to have people who are Christians do all the work, <laughs> you know, artisans and uh, various service providers, and if I go to shops that I know that are Christian, if I buy my chicken sandwich from a place that's Christian, if I, you get the point, right? And we think, well, this will be fine, right? This will be good. If I just buy Christian art, despite the fact much of it is just a demoralizing ripoff of what is out in pop culture, then I'm going to be fine, Right? And we will miss that just by slapping the label on it as Christian hardly makes it Christian. In fact, Jesus says many will say, remember this? Lord, Lord, and I will say, department from me, I did not know you. That is no escape from the question, right? Because the question has to be asked at the level of our hearts, is what are we really gearing and steering our lives toward? What are they about? Are they about my good ideas and hoping that God will come along and rubber stamp them? Or are we really reflecting on what what has God given us and what are we called into? Me and my family. That's a much harder question to answer, isn't it? But that's the question. That's the question we ought to be asking. And finally, we're blessed for a purpose. He meets this guy, we've we've already talked about him, Melchizedek, along the way. And he's such a mysterious character. I mean, he really just kind of comes out of nowhere and then disappears. And never hear about him again. Not in any story anyway. But the, remember, the blessing for Abram has been that God will work salvation through this family and through the nation that he'll build out of it. But they run into a guy who is, who is the king of Salem. Salem in 
Hebrew means peace. He's the king of peace. His name, if that isn't good enough for you, is from two words, Melki and Zedek, the king of righteousness. That's his name, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. This is the guy that they run into. And Melchizedek then provides a kind of pattern, however briefly we encounter it, for what God is going to do through Abram's family. If you don't believe me, then the one other place that Melchizedek is even mentioned in the Old Testament is in Psalm 110. And that is a royal hymn about the Messiah, about the heir of King David, and is thinking about how great he'll be. And then out of nowhere, in verse 4, you get this line, you are a priest forever in the, after the order of Melchizedek. And I mean, everybody must have been scratching their heads, like, what does that mean? After the order of Melchizedek, right? Well, Melchizedek then predates the whole sacrificial system. He is outside of it. He is, a king to the, he is a king and a priest to the one true God. And he, the book of Hebrews then picks this up in the New Testament. And in verse, chapters 5 through 7, you can go back and read that this afternoon. It'll be interesting. He talks about how Jesus, in fulfilling everything that the sacrificial system was about, has actually become this priest after the order of Melchizedek. Outside of and better than all the ceremonial stuff that gets added. And this is what he says in in Hebrews 5. He says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's a lot going on, but do you understand the point? Melchizedek gave a word of promise to Abram, a blessing. After what God had promised, Jesus, in his prayers and his supplication and his crying out, made good on the promises of God. Jesus' word is a better word than the blessing of Melchizedek because Jesus the son of Abraham, the one that was being waited for, fulfilled all that God had promised. See, the blessing that Abram receives materially is nothing to the one who possesses all of heaven and earth. It really is nothing. God could give him whatever he needed. It cost him not a lick. But to bless his people with his love, who were lost in their sins, to redeem this world in his love, in the face of its ruin, but that cost him everything. That cost him his own son. It cost Jesus his life. And it's because the son of Abram gave his life for us that we are received. See, that is not only the proof that God loves us, it is how God loved us. 
And I don't think there's a mistake then that when Melchizedek comes out, what does he bring in verse 18? But bread and wine. Now, I'm not saying he understood this as being a sacrament necessarily, but I don't think it's a mistake that when Jesus left us a sign of his work, it was bread and wine. This time reinterpreted, reshaped to remind us of his body and blood given for us. So we would know the lengths that he went to fulfill the promise to Abraham. The lengths that he went to bless us with his love. And that blessing is never without return. Remember he had told Abram, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to others. And that blessing is for others. I mean, what we are called to be as God's people is a blessing to others. And what that blessing looks like is those who are poor in spirit. Those who are mourners, those who are meek, those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, those who are merciful and pure in heart. Because that's what the world needs. The world doesn't need more influencers. Good grief, that's the last thing we need, right? The world doesn't need more Christians who are full of themselves, who, who think that they who are satisfied with their own righteousness. The world doesn't need more people who are triumphant in what they have, who are proud of all that they've achieved, who are comfortable in what they own. The blessing of God that we give to others is to learn his love. And that will make us into those who are poor in spirit, those who are meek, those who are pure in heart. And it will buoy us up even when we are persecuted. This is the blessing of God, his love, that changes you into somebody who blesses others just like him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make us the kind of people that bless others, who are not proud of what they have or what they've achieved or proud, certainly, of their own righteousness. But instead, Lord, we pray that you would make us those who find their hunger and thirst for righteousness only satisfied by what you give. So as we come to this table, bless us, Lord, so that we might be a blessing to others. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.